Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Commonweal Policy Podcast with me, Craig DL, and we're joined again this week by Lewis Akers, a volunteer researcher who uh, was keen to get back on and share some of his opinions. Hello, Lewis, how are you doing? Hi, yeah, I'm good. It's, uh, it was quite interesting last week and it was uh, it's quite good hearing the sound of your own voice sometimes, isn't it? Especially when it's things you're really, really passionate about, yes. you know. Well, I uh, threw you in at the deep end last week, so I'm <laughs> sorry about that, but... Um, you're back, so it couldn't have been all terrible. <laughs> no. Um, so we've been sort of discussing in the office today some of the uh, announcements around um, IndyRef 2 and the Referendum Scotland Bill uh, and some of the stuff around the uh, European elections. So we're just going to yep. fire into uh, the European elections first. I was wondering if you could give us a kind of brief overview of some of your thoughts around that um, and the kind of the aftermath of that. Well, if anyone was in any doubt that... Uh, the, the, the UK was potentially not the most homogenous of entities, uh, the EU elections, as the previous uh, the elections in previous years uh, have shown that, yes, Scotland's a little bit different from what's going on down south. Yeah. So um, one notable thing that actually happened everywhere uh, where Scotland wasn't so different was the collapse of the centre. The two main parties, the Tories and Labour, totally collapsed. And in their place have, you know, risen different entities. In England, we had the domination of the Brexit Party. Nigel Farage's new vehicle, now that he's left UKIP, uh, this party has a manifesto of Brexit. And that's it. <laughs> um, in Scotland, we saw the rise of the SNP. In Wales, they were kind of split. You saw a few, a few constituencies in Wales go um, towards the Brexit Party and a few go towards... Um, Plaid Cymru. Um, so yeah, there's a, a lot of interesting stuff going on in all that. Um, it's perhaps not surprising that the Brexit Party did so well. There are a lot of people really hacked off that their Brexit, the Brexit that they voted for, is falling apart because of the total mismanagement of the Tory government. And if you are one of them, if you are one of these hacked off Leave voters who has seen the Tories throw everything away, throw away all of their respectability and their, their reputation, throw away Britain's reputation as being a world leader in diplomacy and negotiations. You know, if you've been watching any of the documentaries like the, the, the recent one uh, that followed Guy Verhofstadt around Europe, I don't know yeah. if you've seen that, yeah. Behind Closed Doors, fascinating documentary in which you see a lot of EU officials simply in utter despair uh, and almost to the point of laughter at the UK because there's nothing left. There's, the, the UK is a hollow shell. Um, so if you are a hacked-off lever, you're not going to trust your vote to the Tories for more of the same. <laughs> you're not going to give it to Labour because while Labour is marginally pro-Brexit, their, their, their stance is respecting the, the referendum but they're they're throwing in various other options of how the deal could be changed or renegotiated or maybe it could be put back to a people's vote to make the decision. It's not very clear where they are standing and it ha their stance has been evolving. So if you're a solidly believing, sincere Leave voter, you're not going to give your vote to the Leave, uh, to the Labour Party either. And all of the other parties... The Lib Dems, the Greens, Change UK, they're all solidly remain. And UKIP have just turned into some floundering racists, really, and banking on, you know, what, 
a dubious YouTuber as one of their candidates. They're nothing anymore. They, it's really been shown that they were held up by the force of personality of Nigel Farage. Yeah. So the hacked-off Leave voter has one option, and that's the Brexit party. And they voted for him. They voted for that party. It's not a real surprise. It's not even a surprise that the Brexit party came second in Scotland. You see that you've, if you've been looking around social media, you'll have seen the, the, the image of the UK with the first party in, in each constituency and virtually all of Scotland is SNP yellow. But underneath that, in most of those, the Brexit party came second. Yeah. For the same reason. You know, the hacked-off Leave voters, and I've met a few, are, are feeling the same thing. They're, they're not trusting their vote to the Tories. They're not trusting it to the Labour either. And all of the other parties in Scotland are solidly remain. So it is an interesting protest vote. I don't yeah. know if, you, if, if, if you've got any... I don't know. I mean, I, I, I was sort of... Uh, there was lots of kind of things on uh, the election analysis when I was watching it at the weekend. Um, and they were talking about uh, how, you know, Labour's going to have to reorientate its policy platform, stop sitting on the fence in between, you know, kind of um, being pro-Brexit and trying to kind of stay in. Um, they're almost going to seem like a two-headed donkey that's just going to snap at one point when it mm. starts pulling in either direction. I wondered what your kind of thoughts were around um, how Bre- how the Labour Party reorientates sort of policy. I mean, because um, a, a lot of people are taking the analysis that Labour need to take a more kind of pro-Remain stance, but actually down in England that, that might not quite work if the Brexit Party are the ones that have done the best in the election. Do you not think? I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Do I think Lord Ashcroft's poll uh, on this, his exit poll, um, showed a great deal of movement from the Labour Party to various places. You saw a yeah. lot of pro-Leave Labour voters moving to the Brexit Party, but you also saw a lot of pro-Remain voters moving to the Lib Dems and the Greens. Um, and that is a reflection of Labour's fairly muddled stance on all yeah. of this. Um I'm. I'm not. Sh- I'm, personally, I'm not really sure where Labour could go yeah. on the Brexit issue that would get those voters back. Because a lot I, of their, I, a lot of their heartlands are, you know, the Brexit heartlands as well. I mean, um, if they if they go to Remain, then they kind of, I suppose they, they they risk alienating one part of their vote, and if they go to kind of pure Brexit, then they risk. You know, alienating another start yeah. of their, their sort of heartland. So it is a quite impossible situation for Labour at the moment. I don't envy them, you know, <laughs> no, um, at no. all. No, uh, I think it's it's possibly the point where you know British politics has to move beyond Brexit. Yeah, and this is this is where Labour can prob- possibly see a pathway back to to some sort of policy position that people could vote for, and that's by starting to talk about things other than Brexit. Yeah. Maybe talk about the things that they can do with Brexit. Yeah, rather and than just, you know, yeah, Brexit. Start, <laughs> yeah, start talking about industrial policy or yeah. you know, economic policy in general. And they, you can see they're doing it. You can see they're starting to do this. Um, but it's maybe time for the public to also catch up with yeah. that. And that's the crux of it. You know, the parties might want to talk about something other than Brexit, but for the pop, for the populist, Brexit's still the big thing because, you know, despite being passed the 29th of March, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. We still need to go through this final phase of whatever will happen, you know, to get to the final point, whether it is some sort of ratification of the withdrawal agreement. I'm seeing that as less likely now that the person who 
signed off on it his his leaving office um and all of the potential replacements for Theresa May are taking a fairly harder line on it than she did. No. They, they're, you know, a lot of the lead candidates, Boris Johnson, for instance, is saying there will be no more extensions and he's happy to leave on no deal uh, if need be. And I think there's a couple of them also just outright advocating for a no deal. So it's a bit of a worrying time there if you're, if you're looking for something softer than... You know, jumping off the cliff. I mean, is, could Rory Stewart be quite a soft kind of conservative candidate in the sense that in recent sort of um, interviews he's been talking about the idea of citizens' assemblies as a solution to Brexit? Uh, I mean, I don't know if that indicates he's such a soft candidate, but at least he indicates that there's maybe a, there's different styles of thought in that leadership campaign. Maybe, but it remains to see if he's the kind of candidate that the Tory party members will vote One, for. yeah. Um, and this is the thing, a lot of those Tory party members will have voted for the Brexit party yeah. in the EU elections. <clears throat> so a uh, soft and reasonable Conservative party may, may not be the one that they want. They want yeah. We need to see how that pans out. I mean, in terms of the, the Scottish result, I've seen a lot of, we both kind of, I suppose, live in um, NDRF, um, social media land, yeah. and see a lot of discussions from people from across the kind of spectrum about independence. And the, the one thing that people don't seem to be talking about um, is, you know, uh, the rise of the Brexit party in Scotland, what that means, how, how is that a reflection of some of the Scottish electorate? Um, people seem obsessed by this idea of, like, Labour's death in the EU elections, but don't seem to want to talk about, well, actually, what does the election of the Brexit party mean here? Mm. Because the, although there has been lots of good things out of the Scottish, uh, ele- uh, Scottish uh, EU elections, the Brexit party definitely wasn't one of them. You know? Yeah, as I say, I think the, the rise of the Brexit party in Scotland was simply a symptom of there being nowhere else to go for the mm. hacked-off Leave voter. It was a protest vote of the, the, the purest kind. Whether the Brexit Party can consolidate, whether they can actually turn a foothold into a presence in Scotland, in other elections, in non-EU elections, very much remains to be seen. Yeah. Right now, they were they were the party for a proper Brexit. They have no meaningful policy outside of that. They will need to develop that if they want to become a permanent party, rather than just a, a one-off protest to get us over the Brexit line. I'm not even entirely sure if they have a goal of becoming a party beyond that date. So I, I, I'm very, very early stages, and I know political predictions are never a very good, good idea. But We've got a crystal ball out. Yeah. I, at this stage, don't really see a place for them to bed into Scottish politics yeah. at the moment. Now, that could change but it will remain to be seen how that changes. I don't think I'll need to go back and see Lord Ashcroft's work on this. I'm not sure how many SNP voters switched to the Brexit party. And this is the, this is the key thing here. No. Is there, are, there were a substantial number of SNP voters who voted Leave. There were a substantial number of pro-independence voters who voted Leave. Now, how many of them... Well, would prioritise Brexit over independence, say. Now, I, I know personally a couple, but that's anecdotal. I don't know how far beyond that they, they spread. So if it's not the case that substantial numbers of pro-independence people will 
find a home in the Brexit party, then we might find that the pro-union side of Scottish politics simply gets split even further. Yeah. Currently there are three parties on that side, so voters have to be split three ways. Adding a fourth there, if anything, might dilute their ability to campaign and consolidate. Yeah. So, again, very early days. I'm very loath to put anything solid on the table. So I, I suppose the, the Scottish results are just a continuation of that general Brexit trend around the rest of the UK. And yeah. You know, I mean, do you think? Do you think that like, I mean, turnups only turnout was only up by something like four percent or something like that. But do you think that's kind of indicative that people care about it a bit more than they did, you know, at the last European elections? If not care, at least it was perhaps on their mind a little more. A little more. Yeah. Um, it's I mean less than fifty percent turnout. Turnout is not nothing to shout about, but it, it was higher than previous years, so you know it's somewhat encouraging. Um, but yeah, the pattern across Europe has been very interesting. You have this collapse of the centre that has been noted yeah. by a lot of people, where the, the the establishment parties have been evaporating votes, and the established coalitions have have found it found themselves unable to to form those coalitions. Uh, or at least unable to form them without m- pulling in people from the, 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 the radical side of their yeah. wings. You have seen the rise of these radical wings, AFD in Germany, Spain, uh, Vox in Spain, other, um, the Danish People's Party, yeah. these kind of groups. But also what's interesting, while these groups spiked last time, those three parties notably collapsed this time. All three of them, Vox, AFD and People's Party, either dropped or did far less well than they, they, they were anticipated to do. I suspect there's something, again, very speculative, but I suspect there might be something interesting going on here where the collapse of the centre, the first symptom is we need a protest, any protest, we'll pick those guys who are being populist and shouting nice things, yeah. or maybe nasty things, and we'll vote for them. But then next time comes around and the shouty populists don't have anything to say beyond being shouty populists. They can't deliver on any promises. They don't. They aren't making very many promises. They don't have new manifestos. So then, while people don't flock back to the centre, they go to a different, maybe more moderate or maybe just more nuanced out-of-centre party. Which could explain the rise of the Greens, I suppose, which, across Europe. Com- yeah. Which may explain the rise of the and Greens I, in Germany, who came second in the, the EU elections there. Also the Greens and the Lib Dems in England. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think that I mean, the, the sort of decline of some of these kind of hard-right votes across Europe could be uh, down to the aftermath of Brexit and, you know, kind of, I suppose, uh, our kind of friends on the continent kind of learning the lessons that uh, we've had to go through? A sort of oh crap, let's not do that anymore. Yeah, let, let, let's, not, let's not go with those guys. They're a bit nuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure. Um, but um, there, there has been some note of concern uh, among some of the, 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 these groups, I think, in France and, again, Denmark, yeah. um, who were kind of being very Eurosceptic, have kind of turned, a, turned away on that one. They're not saying uh, so much about that anymore. I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, I think there's a lot going on in there. Uh, the big problem is we on this island, we tend not to read a lot of the media from the yeah. continent, so it's very difficult for us to get a handle on you know, what, what is being said over there and what is, is being thought over there. Conversely, 
Everyone in Europe reads English. They all read the British newspapers. Note to the Tories, when you start fighting each other in the Telegraph, they notice. Just because you can't read Der Spiegel shouldn't, isn't an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, there was a complete... Uh, there was a kind of absence of, you know, a lot of the coverage, even on, on the BBC and other news channels, about actually what happened on the continent. And you kind of think, is this how insular we are, that we don't actually think of ourselves as part of a, you know, a, a more kind of... Uh, European um, wide sort of uh, you know uh, alliance you know that we, we don't yeah. think of ourselves as you know having connections with people globally yeah. uh, we just kind of think of ourselves as this little you know one man in an island it's, it's, it's just you know yeah. bizarre pretty it? much um, if, if I could get a, a TV show commissioned I would really love to see a, 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 a much you know broader reach European current affairs yeah. programme um, there are a couple. There's some really, really good ones. Yorpa on BBC Gaelic wins awards for this kind of thing. Very few people watch it, and maybe the language barrier is a, a is an issue there. But if you're not watching it, you really should. Well, you can always use subtitles, I suppose. Well, it's, 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 it's subtitled, or yeah. just learn Gaelic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, one of the things we were discussing earlier, uh, especially in the office, was um, about the labour result. I mean, the, the, it must have been pretty. Devastating to be a Labour um, activist at the weekend, a Labour parliamentarian, whatever. Uh, I mean, David Martin, uh, their sort of longest-standing MEP, says that this is a big wake-up call for the uh, Labour Party. Neil Findlay's also cited kind of constitutional issues as a big problem within the Labour Party just now. Do you think that this has been? I suppose this is a this is a second constitutional issue that they've they failed to take a stance on that actually is appropriate for them um, because. But, you know, they, they took a pretty weak stance on independence in terms of we're against it, but we don't really know what we're for as an alternative. And now with mm. Brexit, they've essentially taken exactly the same stance. Do you think that's harmed them? And that's two times that they've done that now. It probably has. Um, we are living in a world of, of narrative. Yeah. Rather, uh, um, it's no longer sufficient to have a, a series of semi-disconnected policies. You really need to have a... You know what story are you trying to tell with these? Are you trying to be the internationalist workers' party, bringing in links with countries all all over the world, or are you the Scottish nationalist, um, you know, civic nationalist social democrat trying to make the best decisions that Scotland can? That's yeah. kind of the SNP's narrative, although you know even there uh, can have their issues on on narrative policy as yeah. well. You know, the Greens have, you know, the planet is burning, let's do something about it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, you need to you need to know what kind of story you're telling and then go from there, what kind of policies can help you achieve that goal, achieve achieve the story you're trying to make. I mean, surely they could get a much better ra- narrative out of uh, sort of embracing a kind of radical federalist system, um, which is, you know, a, a lot of the leading party members seem to want to head towards that sort of system, I think, anyway. Yeah, I mean, Commonweal has a paper on on federalism in the UK. We do know significant barriers about yeah. it. Um, the major one being the the size of England compared to the other three nations of the UK. You either have a situation where England constantly votes out vote, outvotes the other countries, or a situation where the other countries have a veto over England, or a situation where you have to legally discontinue England and break it up into constituent regions to make everything fairer. Yeah. All three of those options are fairly objectionable for fairly good reasons. 
I mean, we, we've just been, we've just came from watching the uh, Scottish Parliament TV online. Uh, been watching Mike Russell talk about the referendum Scotland bill. Uh, yep. For anybody who's not seen it yet or hasn't uh, sort of read much about it, would you mind giving us a brief overview of what he said and sure. kind of your general first thoughts on it? Sure, and I'll throw a link into the description. Um, the framework essentially is there to codify the rules under which a referendum would be run in Scotland. A hypothetical referendum, not mentioning any particular one that certain people in the SNP might be very interested in running at some point in the near future. (laughs) It's very careful to not mention the I word. (laughs) It's just a coincidence. (laughs) Well, it's... Yeah, it's actually good policy to do this. Rather than codifying the rules for a single referendum every single time you want to run one, you codify the rules for referendums in In general. general. And then when you want to ask a question, you do it under those rules. So it's it's a sensible bit of legislation that way. There have been concerns noted that this does kind of move the powers for running the referendum from the legislative side of the Scottish Government, the Scottish Parliament, um, into the Scottish executive, into the government, into yeah. the ministers. Um, and that's that's kind of true. Parliament will be involved in the creation of this bill. They will have the ability to, to amend it as it's being built. Once it is built and passed, then it's a bit harder to kind of amend it, um, especially, you know, when... when when a particular referendum comes up. So there's maybe merit in in that. But on the whole, having that solid framework there, I think, is a good thing. Yeah. Um, and the rules in it are fairly standard, fairly boilerplate. They basically map off of the last referendums that we've, we've had in, the, in the, the last couple of years. One very interesting bit in it was Section 4, which deals with the franchise, the voting franchise, who would be allowed to vote in referendums in Scotland. And it explicitly states that anyone aged 16 or above who is a Commonwealth, Irish or EU citizen or a British citizen would be allowed to vote in these referendums. So that's EU citizens, even post-Brexit, would have the vote in a Scottish referendum. That's a major step. No, it is amazing. I mean, yeah. you, you couldn't even imagine the UK government even getting close to any sort of oh, no, platform they would, they would, like that. You know, they, they would they would actively block that. Yeah. Um, what was also interesting in Mike Russell's statement today is that the the government is finally moving forward with their legislation to extend the franchise in Scotland to all residents of Scotland aged 16 and above. And they talked about council elections, Scottish Parliament elections, yeah. and obviously they don't have jurisdiction over general elections, but. Well, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> not Let's t- have a referendum on it. Um. Um, but yeah, that that would be that would be amazing. That's that's where we need to get yeah. to um, to not just secure um, the, the the voting rights of EU citizens. Who let's not forget where a lot of people were significantly disenfranchised in the EU referendum just uh, election just there, um, because of the extra steps that they had to go through to to get the vote, and because. The, the rushed nature of that election meant that many of them couldn't take those steps. Yeah. They didn't have time to do it. A lot of people lost their ability to vote in those elections. That was shameful. Um, and, I, and I really hope the UK government is held to account for that shameful handling. But it would be amazing to see Scotland taking a much more progressive stance and just saying, we don't care where you came from. You're in Scotland now. You're resident here. You're affected by the laws here. Therefore, you have a right in how those laws are to say to say how those laws are made. 
It's that, it's that kind of you know English Scots for independence thing where they say you know it doesn't matter where you've came from it's about where we're going together and yeah. I, that is honestly like the a brilliant brilliant quote for to guide us on anything we do I think absolutely you know um, that we're, we we should all be working together as communities to come up with solutions to how to make Scotland a better country and I think this is that that I mean we weren't surprised probably by any other of the contents of Mike Russell's speech but this was brilliant yeah. Uh, uh, Personally, anyway, um, I mean, he also talked a lot, a lot about citizens' assemblies yes. um, as part of his speeches. As part of his speech, and I don't know, do you, do you think that other parties will get involved in that process? How, how do you think that process will look? I mean, they're still coming, they're still yeah. bringing that all together. But how, how, how do you see a kind of common wheel approach to citizens' assemblies looking? We've done some work on uh, citizens' assemblies. Yep. Yeah. And we are doing work just now. Yeah. So what Mike Russell said was that. He wants to see a series of citizens' assemblies to discuss independence issues. Um, there will be an expert working group set up yeah. shortly to organise those. Um, and the first of them, he's hoping to have run this autumn. And then there'll be a series of five or six of them, concluding by the spring of next year. Yeah. Uh, this kind of fits into this pr- the possible timetable of another independence referendum by the end of 2020. Uh, yeah, these are great. This this um, is potentially a really good way of, of getting everyone involved to discuss these issues and how they would go forward. There is the possibility that they will be more enthusiastically attended by those who support independence than those who don't. So there's going to have to be some work to try and get people um, who are on the other side of the constitutional divide engaged, whether that's some sort of balancing of the the assemblies as you're as you're building them i I don't know that's what that'll be for the working group to decide and it is really important we do get views from uh, a representative of the entire demos of scotland um and yeah commonweal's a big fan of citizens assemblies we have a paper on a, a citizens assembly that would be designed as a an upper house to the independent Scottish Parliament. Yeah. So instead of a House of Lords scrutinising legislation, or instead of the current committee system uh, in the in the Parliament for scrutinising legislation, you could put this to a Citizens' Assembly. Think of it as jury duty for a year, except instead of deciding if someone has broken the law, you're deciding if the law itself is fit for purpose. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think that's quite an interesting way of, of getting people more engaged in the laws that affect them. It gives them a direct buy-in, doesn't it? It yeah. gives them a kind of a, a kind of feeling that they're part of some sort of purpose and you know working towards something. Yep. We have also used citizens' assemblies as part of our work on reforming local democracy. So we have a paper, uh, development councils, that advocates for local municipality-level government, government, so towns and villages level, yeah. uh, communities within cities. Um, these development councils would be guided by an annual citizens' assembly who would give them the missions of what is important to do this year in our community. The, these citizens' assemblies would also judge the performance of the development council on its previous year's work. They would also be responsible for um, hosting hustings of candidates when it come, came to elections. So those are the two papers we published uh, we also have papers, a paper coming up we're working on it at the moment looking at the broad scope of how citizens' assemblies can be used elsewhere in government. So the the type that Mike Russell advocates, which is 
pattern directly off the, the Constitutional Citizens' Assemblies used in Ireland. Yeah. So this is for big issues of the day, big issues like constitutional amendments, like should Scotland have a constitution, like should Scotland have the powers to write a constitution, yeah. should it be independent? These big national issues can be discussed at citizens' assemblies. But you can also see a role for citizens' assemblies in, say, infrastructure building that crosses community boundaries or commu- or constitutional boundaries or a motorway that runs through a town or a bridge that crosses between two towns, something like that, yeah. uh, where you have a direct local impact on on people living in the area. So, you know, a new quarry or something, you know, of that nature. Um, so giving the, the local populace a direct say in, in um, what goes on with those projects could be a role for a, for a citizens' assembly too. I suppose it's really exploring the, the ways that we can embed democracy in every yeah. kind of avenue of life. Yeah, it's though, a, it's a, it? yeah instead of the, the, the very British representative democracy where once every four or five years you vote for someone and they go off and do their thing and you, you're not allowed to have a say over what they do until election time again. I actually had an MP that that was his firm stance. Um, he he did not like hearing from the opinions of his constituents between elections because, as he saw it, um, you 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 elected you elected me to go and do what I wanted. If you're not happy with it, vote me out. Well, eventually we did. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's karma, isn't it? <laughs> um, so you've got at one end that that pure representative democracy yeah. you've got the other end pure participatory democracy where you you almost have this anarchy type everybody gets a say on everything or even the swiss style referendum on it's very easy to get a referendum going on almost any issue and and the government is there's a lot of pressure on the government to take on those opinions um these are all different models of democracy uh, i'm more in favor of sliding somewhat towards the participatory uh, stuff. So having these citizen assemblies is a really good way of doing that. I think that no matter what, if you head to much more the representative democracy, then you're only being represented by a small section of society. And if you head to much towards the participatory side, then it's kind of you know you can get those kind of organic centres develop. It's good yep. having a kind of fusion of the two because yep. you know you get the best of both worlds, I suppose. Yep. Um, I suppose we're probably running out of time now, but just one last thing I wanted to ask. Um, in terms of uh, getting a section or a section 30 order from Westminster, how likely do you think that is? Um, I mean, do, do, will any of the Tory candidates grant that for leadership? I think almost all of them have now ruled it out. Yeah. Um, so who knows? Okay. Uh, What's the next <laughs> step after that? Who knows? Yeah, you know. <laughs> this this is it. This is the big period of uncertainty for yeah. Scotland. The Scottish government can line up all the cards except one, which is still in the gift of Westminster. Exactly. If we want to have that section thirty followed by a, a a referendum, which both sides have agreed would be binding, um, and I, I think that's you know, in, in principle, that's a, a reasonable line to take. Um, but when you have a a government on the other side that is being unreasonable. Then I, I'm I'm not sure where we go from there. No. It's, it's difficult to say. That's that's maybe something for a future podcast. Yeah, <laughs> let's have a discussion about that soon. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so one last thing to say is 
the Commonweal podcasts uh, and Commonweal in general is funded entirely by our, our supporters, folk like you, giving us a fiver or a tenner a month. We really cannot do this kind of thing without you, um, and we hope to keep doing so. So I want to thank everyone for listening. If you are able to, to get involved with Commonweal to maybe help supporters in continuing our work, then I'll put a donate button on the description for this podcast. And um, I, I thank you, thank anyone who decides to, to help us out. Um, and thank you for listening this week, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Bye.